Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, Dr. David Shulkin recounts his time as the Secretary of the Veterans Affairs Department for the Trump administration. He's interviewed by Jeremy Butler, CEO of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. All Afterwards are also available to listen to as podcasts. Dr. Shulkin, thank you very much for being with us today. It's an honor to have you here. Uh, I think the VA is an important subject to talk about. It. I think it's one of the areas of our government that a lot of people hear about, uh, but don't necessarily know many of the details. Uh, frankly, even in the veteran community, I think there's a lot of us that don't understand the breadth and the depth of what the VA does. So I'm excited to talk to you about the VA in general, uh, certainly about your book uh, and about your time in the administration. Um, if you'd like, I, I'd love to begin by just sort of hearing about what brought you to the VA. You're very successful in the civilian career uh, and a lot of times you know, making that transition from uh, the civilian world into the government world can be a bit jarring. Uh, what drove you to, to, to want to take up uh, the mantle of working within the government, especially within the VA? Well, during uh, my 20s, I didn't have a chance to serve the way that you did. Uh, I spent my time in medical institutions and doing my medical training, and, and I was sort of a busy 20s. And that's always one of the real regrets that I had that with this amazing country that we have that I wasn't able to give back. And so mm -hmm. later on in my career, I was the CEO of a hospital, and um, I had the opportunity to get a call from the White House. This was right at the time in 2014 when it was a very public wait time crisis mm -hmm. in the VA where there was allegations that veterans were actually dying waiting for care. And I remember sitting there as a citizen saying, oh, I feel terrible about this. If anybody deserves the best care possible, it's our veterans. And I wish there was something I could do to help. And as sometimes happens in strange ways, I got a call from the White House saying, uh, would you consider coming to help lead the VA healthcare system? Because we're looking for somebody who understands how healthcare works and from the private sector. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I did what everybody tends to do when they have these choices to make. I made a list of the pros <laughs> and the cons. And the con side was much, much larger <laughs> than the pro side. But on the pro Absolutely. side, it was simply, how could I say no? This is, this is my duty as an American citizen to give back to people who have given us so much. And so I really didn't think much about it. I said, yes, I'm, I'm prepared to come and help. That's great. And that was, uh, as those of you who have read the, the book know, that was during the Obama administration initially. Uh, so you're one of the few people who have served under both the Obama administration and the Trump administration. So look forward to, to getting into that. Um, that said, I thought I would start. I'd love to read a brief quote uh, from your book. Uh, early on, you write, uh, it is important that Americans understand what the VA system is, how it works, and why it exists. Uh, as I was slightly mentioned, I think a lot of people don't understand the scope of what the VA has uh, and what they're responsible for. I wonder if you could maybe start off by giving, uh, maybe you had an elevator pitch to those that you, that you gave, sort of talking about everything that the VA does, because as you well know, it goes well beyond healthcare as well, but that's what most people know about, but there's so much more that the VA does. Right. One of the reasons I wrote the book was for exactly what you talked about, Jeremy. I'm not sure the American public understands why the VA exists, but why it's really an essential part of our national security system, that when we rely on a voluntary military, which now less than 1% mm -hmm. of Americans serve in, 
But these amazing Americans raised their hand and are willing to sacrifice themselves on behalf of all of us. When they go, there's a commitment that the country has made to them that they will take care of them if they need that help when they come back. And there is no other organization that's focused on that. So as you said, the VA provides health care for 9 million veterans. Mm -hmm. But there are really 20 million veterans mm -hmm. in the country. And so the VA has a large effort directed towards education, mm -hmm. the GI Bill. It has an effort towards benefits should somebody require assistance if they're no longer able to work or if they're disabled. And it also goes all the way through the time of making sure that every veteran when the time comes is buried with dignity mm -hmm. and respect. And so there are 114 VA cemeteries around the country and they do an amazing job supporting families during these tough times. So this is a organization second largest in the US government, exactly. employs 370,000 people who are there, many of them veterans themselves mm -hmm. continuing to give back. It does an amazing job and really does deserve the support and understanding of the American people. No, that's great. I, I appreciate that because that's what I often point out to people that, you know, the VA is the second largest department, second largest agency, uh, second largest budget. Uh, and people, I think, really just from a civics mind point, you know, should be a little bit more informed about everything that yeah. the VA does. I, I think that's right. And, and if I could, just about the health care aspect, because it gets so much focus of the, of mm -hmm. the public attention on the VA. Um, when I came from the private sector into government, I had never worked in government before. I actually had a completely open mind when I was reading all of these horror stories in the press that I would go there and I would find that this system was so broken and so dysfunctional that maybe my job was going to be just to sort of close up mm -hmm. shop and, and say, you know what, the best thing I can do for veterans is, is eliminate the VA healthcare system and move everybody into private hospitals, mm -hmm. something that I knew very well. And after I got to the VA and I began to see what the VA does, uh, and when I say got to see, I put on my white coat as mm -hmm. a doctor and took care of veterans and went out and visited hospitals across the country and went to see uh, places like where we bring paralyzed veterans skiing down the mm -hmm. slopes in Aspen, Colorado. I really began to understand that what the VA does in its healthcare system is very different than what the private sector does and in fact can't be replaced. The private sector doesn't do the things that the VA healthcare system right. does in all cases. Um, for example, our behavioral healthcare system. It is extensive, it is large, where the private sector behavioral healthcare system is really struggling mm -hmm. and trying to get access. If we were to put these nine million uh, veterans, just dump them into the private sector system on a system that already is struggling to meet right. its needs, uh, we just, know that the veterans would not come out on the on the right side of that. And so I became a very strong advocate for making sure that this is a system that works well, that we need to modernize and improve, but that it will be a sustainable system. Absolutely. And you've touched on a couple of things there that I want to make sure we're sure. going to come back to. Sure. Uh, privatization and things like that, very important topics, uh, a large part of your book. Uh, I don't want you to think I'm going to skip over that, but nope. I think we'll get to that. Uh, in, in a little time, but I want to kind of continue with the scene setting because what you mentioned also yeah. reminded me of a common saying uh, that certainly within the veteran community, I think even within the VA, that if you've been to one VA, you've been to one VA. And you mentioned how, especially in the beginning, you did a lot of going around to visit different VAs and things like that. Why do you think that is, that 
even though we're talking about an agency that has oversight of all of these different areas, you get so many different stories. And unfortunately, I think the yeah. negative stories are yeah. the ones that often make it yeah. into the press. Yeah. Uh, but you hear horror stories about one VA, but then in talking to so many veterans, our membership often tells us that they love the care that they get at the VA. Uh, they just some, you know, they would like to get access to it faster yeah. uh, and things like that. But why do you think there is that there's such a right. variety of, of levels of care that one receives from the VA? First of all, the VA is under a public scrutiny that no other hospital system in the country uh, finds. As a hospital CEO in the private sector, I can tell you little things that that happen in the VA that would never come to the attention in the private sector turn out to be the subject of congressional hearings and major front page mm -hmm. stories. So I think the public gets a sense that there are lots of things that are happening in VA hospitals that don't happen in the private sector. But again, using the private sector comparison, the question I would get most frequently being a physician CEO was, well, what's the best hospital for me to go to? Mm -hmm. And my answer always was, well, interestingly, there is no such thing as the best hospital. There are hospitals that are good <laughs> at some things, excellent at right. some things, and those same hospitals may not be so good in some other specialties mm -hmm. in other areas. And I think that's the same in the VA system. When you have the largest system in the country with over a 1,000 facilities, you are going to have some that are excellent at certain conditions and others that, frankly, need work on them. That's just what you're going to find in healthcare. Uh, but the VA has an additional complexity in that it needs to provide care to veterans wherever they live in mm -hmm. this country. And so therefore, we have a large number of our veterans who live in very rural areas. And finding people, especially specialists, mm -hmm. to be able to work in rural areas is a challenge for the VA. It's also a challenge for private sector as well. And so you have a tremendous variation between what works in the VA from one place to another place. And that's one of the things that, of course, uh, I worked very hard on to try to standardize some of these practices. Absolutely. And that reminded me of a very funny story from your first confirmation hearing when I believe it was Senator Sullivan from Alaska who uh, basically said, you need to come to Alaska because we have unique set of circumstances here, uh, unique challenges to veterans, and you need to come here and understand that uh, before you know, he was going to vote for you. Yeah, I think, I, I think just, uh, <laughs> just to let people know a little bit more about that, Jeremy, um, uh, many people don't understand the Senate confirmation process. Mm -hmm. And you actually, in order to go quickly through a Senate process and not require a, a entire floor vote, you have to have unanimous consent, mm -hmm. and this was when I was undersecretary, and the White House said to me, good news, you have unanimous consent, you're, you're, you're going to be confirmed in the next couple minutes. Mm -hmm. And right as that vote was happening, Senator Sullivan said, not so quick, I need to have a conversation with the nominee. <laughs> so he called me up and he said, listen, I'm standing on the Senate floor, I'm about to cast my vote, but uh, I want you to commit to me that in the first 30 days, if you are confirmed, that you will come mm -hmm. to Alaska with me because Alaska is very different than other states mm -hmm. and our veterans have different needs. And so I said, Senator, we're going to Alaska. And then the vote went through. <laughs> <laughs> Which I imagine was your intention anyways, because as you mentioned, there's, there's a lot of uh, variability, um, geographically speaking, especially in terms of making it difficult to get proper uh, professionals uh, to some of the rural areas and things like that. Well, uh, 
Alaska is is one of the few states, New Hampshire and Hawaii being the others, that don't have its own VA hospital. Uh, and so meeting the healthcare needs of those states is extraordinarily challenging. We have to partner in, in, in Anchorage, we partner with the Air Force Hospital actually. But uh, I was absolutely delighted to travel with the senator as I was when I went to other rural states like Maine uh, with their senators as well. Mm -hmm because that's the way that you really get to understand how to fix problems that are out there by talking to veterans about what they're experiencing. Absolutely. And another thing that you did was you continued to see patients uh, d during your time in the VA, which I think might surprise some people um, that you had, I wouldn't say the time to do it because you were working very hard seven days a week, as you note in there. But in fact, that was something that you felt was necessary and vital to you really understanding the needs of the veterans. Could you expand on that? Well, I think I think every leader uh, can do their job more effectively if they understand what the impact of their decisions are. Mm -hmm. So if I was going to be making a decision, as I ultimately did, on which electronic record the VA would use, a big decision, how could I make that decision if I had never used the VA's electronic mm -hmm. record? And if I had never been working with patients and nurses and doctors, understanding how they interact with the record. And so when I would put on my white coat uh, and go and see people, no one knew I was secretary. Certainly mm -hmm. the veterans didn't know that. <laughs> but it helped me understand what was working and how they were experiencing the decisions that I had to make from the ground level. And I think that made me a better and more effective leader. Absolutely. And you also know you touched on the electronic health records, which is something else I want to talk about uh, here in a little bit. Uh, but you remind me, there's a very funny anecdote. When you were uh, in your doctor capacity talking to veterans, as you said, you've got your white coat on. They don't necessarily know who you are. You got some sort of startling response yes. from a veteran. Could you yeah. tell that story? Yeah. Well, uh, I would work. Um, I would see patients two ways. I'd see them in person, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the exam room here in New York City at the Manhattan VA. And then I'd see them using telehealth from my office in Washington to a clinic in Grants Pass, Oregon, a very okay. rural part mm -hmm. of the country. So I really got an experience both urban and rural and using telehealth and in person. But I was uh, in the New York uh, Manhattan VA when uh, I saw a patient who came in and I said, what can I do for you, sir? And he said, uh, well, I need a physician to fill out this form. And I said, oh, I'd be glad to help you with that. Can you tell me what the form's for? And he says, yeah, I need a certification because I'm suing Secretary Shulkin. <laughs> and um, so I asked him what that was about. He was actually a homeless veteran and was trying to get additional benefits uh, so that he could get himself out of that situation and get himself back on, on track. And... Uh, needed a physician certification of his issues that he was dealing with. And so I said to him, well, uh, you know, sir, uh, first of all, I'm going to help you. We're going to get you the form that you need, but I don't think I'm the person to do it. And he looked at me and said, why? I said, because I'm Secretary Shulkin. And he said, oh, no, 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 this can't be true. And so, uh, but, but, you know, we got him on his way, and I got another physician to help him. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and you, you also... Early on, you, you mentioned uh, five priorities that you had yes. when you were coming into the VA. Could you talk about those five priorities, sort of how you arrived at what they would be, uh, and maybe you can expand on some of your how you feel you did in achieving those, those yeah. goals during your time? When I first came to the VA, um, 
I not only uh, had never worked in government before, but this was an organization that I was going to have to learn. And it was uh, such a large organization um, that if I had waited until I truly understood everything about it, we'd be waiting a long time. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned, I entered in a time of crisis. There were mm -hmm. veterans literally waiting for care that needed help, and I didn't feel like I had the time that I normally would if this was a normal situation. So I came in having studied the VA from the outside the best I could, and I came in and I said, we are going to have priorities right now, and if we change them later on, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But our single top priority was going to be to address the wait time crisis. And uh, there were hundreds of thousands of veterans mm -hmm. waiting more than 30 days for care, but most critical to me was that there were 57,000 veterans waiting for an urgent medical consultation. Mm -hmm. That was just waiting more than 30 days for an right. urgent medical consultation. That was totally unacceptable to me and outside the bounds of what I thought was reasonable. So I immediately called for every medical center to be open on the following weekend. Mm -hmm. And during that weekend, we contacted those 57,000 veterans. And by Monday morning, we had that list down to less than 1,000 veterans. So once we essentially got the backlog taken care mm -hmm. of, I wanted to make sure that we never got into that situation again. So I did a couple things. The first is, uh, as secretary, one of my first decisions was to publicly post our wait times. Mm -hmm. The VA today is the only system that I'm aware of that publishes its wait times so that people can see. The second thing that I did was I established same-day services throughout the entire country. So by December of 2016, I was able to tell Secretary McDonald and President Obama that every VA medical center had the capability of seeing people on the same-day basis so that we'd never be in a situation so that somebody with an urgent issue mm -hmm. couldn't be taken care of. Um, we ended up publishing a article in the Journal of the American Medical Association where we studied, after we put all these things in place, how the VA's wait times compare to the private sector, right. what people, mm -hmm. the American public does. And the VA actually turns out to be better now. Mm -hmm. uh, and that we had made tremendous progress in addressing that issue, really with the commitment of the employees and the staff that work there. The other uh, priorities, but that was our top priority, mm -hmm. were focusing on uh, establishing improving employee morale mm -hmm. because morale had been terrible and there were 45,000 vacancies right. in the VA and recruiting people mm -hmm. to an organization that has low morale is, exactly. is, a, is a significant challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, probably one of our most important priorities was regaining the trust of the veterans that we served. And as I would always say to our staff in the VA, we don't have a stock price. You know, we're a government mm -hmm. organization, so we can't follow our progress by looking whether we're, whether right. we're doing better <laughs> with the stock price. But what we can do, we can track whether we're regaining the trust that we had lost of our veterans. And fortunately, that began to climb as well and still is continuing to climb in the VA today, which is very, very good news. Um, we had uh, established another priority of uh, creating best practices, learning from one VA to another and learning what works and then doing it across the country so we could decrease some of that variation in the quality of care mm -hmm. that you had talked about. And that was 
very successful in being able to do that as well. So that's how we established our priorities. That's great. And were some of these things that you brought from the private sector, I know there's vast differences, as you already alluded to, between the ways in which we as a country can provide care to civilians and the way in which we should be providing care to our veterans. But were there things or are there things that we can continue to learn from the private sector to improve the way we deliver care to veterans? Yeah, interestingly, as I, as I mentioned before, not only did I not have the time to wait to learn all the ways of government um, because I felt that mm -hmm. there were urgent issues like the wait time issues, but I also deliberately didn't want to start to think mm -hmm. as if I was a government employee. I wanted to deliberately bring the industry best mm -hmm. practices, the way that we thought about things in the private sector to government. And what I ended up learning was, was that the government could benefit from many of the practices that the private sector does. It mm -hmm. needs to challenge itself and it needed to modernize some of the ways it was thinking. But I actually learned that there was more that I learned in the VA that the private sector could benefit from. So this is actually a two-way, a bi-directional learning that needs to happen mm -hmm. between the private sector and government, and in this case, VA. Well, and that's interesting because right now there's an ongoing, continued debate about the future of healthcare within of this course. country, and I don't think that is a perspective that often is brought into that conversation about what we can learn from the government side. Frankly, that's not usually something that people say is we can learn from the government to improve the yeah. private care. Yeah, I don't think people understand <clears throat> that when you look at the outcomes of care across mm -hmm. a population, which is very popular right now in healthcare, it's mm -hmm. called population health, the VA outperforms almost every other major mm -hmm. healthcare system. Not saying it's the very best. There are some right. great healthcare systems out there mm -hmm. uh, that this country provides terrific care. But when you look on on average, the VA performs better than most mm -hmm. of the private sector. And so, if you look at some of the things that we did, like for example, I made the declaration that I wanted to eliminate hepatitis mm -hmm. hepatitis C yep. from the entire veteran population. There were 163,000 veterans cared for in the VA system that mm -hmm. had hepatitis C. And now, fortunately, we have a drug, mm -hmm. several drugs, that can eliminate the virus, cure right. it, at a 95% or higher mm -hmm. cure rate. So I didn't see any reason why we should have any veteran who had mm -hmm. hepatitis. Uh, and so I went out. Congress gave us a billion and a half dollars to do this. We went out and we proactively began to contact every veteran who had hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. Today, the VA has treated well over 100,000 of those veterans, well on the way to eliminating hepatitis C. We need to do more of that in the general population. Right. And not many health systems are thinking that way, proactively looking at outreach in population health. But these are some of the lessons we can learn from the VA. Absolutely. And so this kind of gets back to it, as you mentioned care that veterans get through the VA often is rated very high. There are studies that you mentioned that show that. As I mentioned, our membership generally likes the care that they get from the VA. There are some things that they want for improvement. That said, we do too often hear the negative stories in the press and not the positive stories. You didn't mention it as one of your priorities when you came in, but you certainly addressed it in the book. Another area in which the VA continues to get slammed is around the, the problem of military and veteran suicide. Yes. Um, it's such a complicated issue. Uh, 
mental health is a complicated issue that not only in the veteran and military space, but certainly we as a country, I think, are struggling to understand, struggling to figure out how to talk about, and certainly struggling to figure out how to solve. Do you have any insights from your time at the VA and your time since uh, as to how we can begin to address this issue um, and how we can both within and without of the VA? Yeah, the single highest clinical priority that I established was to reduce veteran suicide. 20 veterans a day taking their life. It's a staggering figure that um, I used to sit there and just say, if we let another week go by, you know, there, there goes another 140 of our, of our veterans. And um, there is still so much work to do on this, and it's why I'm pleased that Secretary Wilkie has continued to make veteran suicide a priority for the VA. One of the things when you begin to start taking a look at this is of those 20 veterans a day who take their life, only six are getting care in the VA system. So there are 14 that are out in the community, and my biggest worry is they're not getting any help at all. So one of the first initiatives that we did at the VA was to start outreach to community partners, veteran service organizations like IAVA and others, community groups and churches and religious organizations, but groups like the United Way and others out there, local governments and state governments, all to begin to start working together to identify veterans at risk and then finding them treatment. Every VA medical center has something called a suicide prevention coordinator. Many of them have multiple suicide prevention coordinators. Their job is to be out there looking for veterans at risk and identifying ways to help them. That's one of the practices that I think the VA has that the private sector should have. They should have suicide prevention coordinators because this is a American public health issue, not just in veterans. Um, but we need to do a lot more. And the underlying reason why people take their lives, it's not because they wake up one day and say, hey, I feel like doing this. Mm -hmm. They're suffering from something. Mm -hmm. It could be depression. It could be PTSD. Mm -hmm. It could be chronic pain. It could be substance abuse, other reasons. We have to look at the ways of getting to those underlying reasons, finding more effective diagnosis and treatment of those conditions, and really beginning to make sure that we are proactively identifying how we can intervene and help. And there's so much more work to do. Uh, lots of promising mm -hmm. opportunities to do that. Uh, we're looking at predictive analytics. We're looking at more effective therapies, but much work to be done in this area. Absolutely. We, you know, IVA and as you said, many other VSOs have this as our number one priority yes. as well. And I think, um, Unfortunately, what we're seeing is that the situation is not improving. You know, recent yes. reports continue to come out uh, from both the military, the VA, and the civilian world showing that we're not getting at the problem. And I think you started to, to talk about yes. this. I think we shouldn't be looking at it as a, an emergency response issue, but it's a much broader thing. We need to look at the underlying issues, as you mentioned, chronic pain, uh, things like that, homelessness, financial issues. So much can be reaching into that. Uh, which, which the VA alone can't solve, maybe even the government alone can't solve. I think there clearly has to be a, a whole of government and a whole of society, I think, approach to this. That said, like the VA as the leader 
for the veterans community within the government uh, should be spearheading that, I think. But that's, that's I'm sure, a challenge. Yeah, and I'm proud of the work that the VA is doing in this. They are they're working hard to address issues. But like many, many tough problems that Americans face, um, we have to even do more and we have to push through some of the barriers that have prevented us from making progress. I think you're right. The recent suicide prevention report, although the VA has decided to report the data differently, so it looks like right. a smaller number. Exactly. It is not a smaller number. In fact, it actually went up a little bit. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is not about um, keeping a scorecard. This is, this is about making progress, and uh, I'm not sure that we're there yet. Yep, I completely agree. Um, another area I'd like to touch on uh, is women veterans. This is an area in which, again, I think a lot of the country doesn't realize how much uh, the landscape has changed. We have more women joining the military. We certainly have more women serving in combat roles. Um, and more women coming back from these uh, deployments needing VA care. But I think we certainly hear from it firsthand that women oftentimes don't feel welcome at the VA. Uh, they are sometimes harassed on the way in, catcalled, things like that. And then they uh, sometimes feel that when they walk up, it's assumed that they're there for a spouse, for a boyfriend, something like that. Uh, what needs to be done to begin to change uh, this culture uh, that it seems is, is throughout the VA and maybe throughout the country, frankly, that doesn't quite recognize the service of women veterans the same way we recognize the service of male veterans? Yeah, the fastest growing demographic in the military is women in the military. You know, we now have about 14% of our military serviced by women, and as you said, they're playing extremely important roles. And not to recognize and respect their service is just simply uh, wrong and something that can't be tolerated by the VA or any other part of our society. But I do think you're right that this is a reflection of issues that we see in the broader society. What the VA has decided to do, and something that I supported, rather than waiting for culture to change and attitudes to change, we have to make sure that we're providing care with the respect that, that everyone deserves, especially women. And so we created uh, women's clinics and women's centers, now in over 120 of our medical centers, that often have separate entrances, mm -hmm. but create a secure and comfortable environment when women go to get their care there, where they don't have to worry about uh, any of the issues that we've talked about. And these are often really uh, centers of excellence where, where people love getting their care there. In some ways, though, it's a shame that we have to create separate exactly. places for people. Mm -hmm. uh, but we weren't willing to just wait and say, we're going to try to change attitudes. But at the same time that we are providing these women's centers, we do need to begin to change the attitudes and not accept it. There was a recent uh, public issue at the Washington, D.C. VA less than a month ago where a woman veteran uh, was harassed uh, just walking through the halls mm -hmm. and had the courage to come out and talk about that experience. And I know that uh, I certainly um, went out publicly and supported her as many of the mm -hmm organizations did to be able to say this is unacceptable. We need people like this uh, brave woman to be able to speak out on behalf of her fellow veterans, and um, we need to begin to start changing these attitudes.
Yeah, and I think, as you mentioned, we, we need male veterans to be leading this charge yes. as well, to be speaking up for, for them as well. It's, yes. not, uh, shouldn't, it's not something that the burden should be placed completely right. on the women veterans. One of the ways in which we are trying to, to begin this process and to sort of drive a top-down understanding that there really does need to be and should be a cultural change within the VA is to, frankly, change the motto. Um, many people don't know that the motto of the VA is an Abraham Lincoln quote, uh, for, she, for he who has borne the battle and for his widow and for his orphan. Um, we have been pushing, and there's legislation in, to change the motto to something that is more uh, embracing of the changing nature of, of our military and of our veteran community. Uh, it's something that has frankly received some pushback uh, in a lot of quarters. Uh, did this come up uh, internally at the highest levels when you were uh, within the VA? Yeah, it was one of one of the disappointments that 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 I had. You know, the military is probably the place in our society where differences and diversity um, have the opportunity to go away. This is the ultimate melting pot. You know, everybody shares the same goal. You rely upon each other, just in some cases, to survive. Doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, black, white, woman, male. Um, you know, this is a common mission. And uh, for the VA not to be inclusive and to embrace that type of diversity, I think, is a mistake. And while uh, I understand people's deep uh, attraction to Abraham Lincoln's motto, um, that was in a different time. Uh, and we need to recognize that the new modern VA needs to be leading in this type of inclusion. And I think that if there is a motto that people feel excluded from, it's time for us to recognize that. And I do not believe that Abraham Lincoln would be upset with that. Uh, he was a guy who stood for, uh, you know, making sure that we were one country together. He believed strongly in supporting the people who fought for the country, as um, many of us do. But um, but, you know, I think talking about the issues and the importance of women, uh, you know, now, a couple hundred years after Abraham Lincoln, it's time for us to move towards a more modern motto. Absolutely. And there's legislation to, to change that motto, but correct me if I'm wrong, the VA actually has the ability to do it on its own. It wouldn't need an act of Congress uh, to change that. Is that correct? No, it would not. And I don't, I don't think, uh, at least as secretary, I did not envision chiseling off the Abraham Lincoln quotes off the concrete of the building. There's a way of honoring history and respect and not changing the dignity of what Abraham Lincoln gave to us as a country with this, with this commitment towards our veterans. Uh, but um, you know, Abraham Lincoln's original quote, as you know, talks about widows and orphans. Mm -hmm. um, this is not uh, language that we traditionally use in 2019. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way of honoring the original words of Abraham Lincoln, but talking about the new uh, VA in a way that could be done with respect for our history. Absolutely, completely agree. Um, I'd like to shift a little bit now. Uh, we're kind of talking big picture about the VA. I'd like to move into your time specifically within the administration, yes. specifically as secretary. Um, we've already touched on a couple of these issues, but I, I think it's safe to say that if you look at the 
the, especially the parts in your book about your service as VA secretary under President Trump, uh, two of the underlying policy debates that uh, drove so much of your time there were around privatization and around the electronic health records yes. uh, that we d discussed here. Um, privatization is a word that comes up all the time. I don't think most people fully understand what yes. is meant when we're talking about that. Could you give the audience an understanding of what we mean when we talk about privatization within the VA? Well, privatization to its fullest extent would be the simple concept of shutting down the VA medical centers and the VA healthcare system, giving a voucher to a veteran and saying, you go and find your own health care in the private setting, <coughs> excuse me, and we will pay the bill. Mm -hmm. That would be the ultimate goal of privatization. Uh, and there is a strong belief that government should not be involved in the delivery of services, that government is inherently inefficient. I think we've talked about this earlier where I believe that this, the government's involvement in VA healthcare um, is the most effective way of honoring our nation's commitment to our veterans. That does not mean that veterans should not have the ability to go into the private sector when it's in their best interest, mm -hmm. when the care is better or specialized care is available that's not in the VA. I think we all believe that that should be available. But my belief is, is that the complete privatization of the, of the VA would be a disaster. And we would look back when veterans aren't getting the care that they deserve and say, how do we recreate a system that cares for them? Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't want to see us go in that direction. When I first came to the VA, 19% of veterans were getting care in the community. When I left, it was 36%. Mm -hmm. So I was strongly in favor of not having veterans get inferior care or waiting for care if the VA couldn't do it, but we got them to the private sector. Mm -hmm. I think that this is an issue of that there are policies being pursued by those who favor the dismantling of the VA where they do not raise their hand and say that they're in favor of privatization because that would be politically unpopular. So they're not going to say that. But if you watch the impact of these policies over the years that will come, I believe they will lead to a point where there is complete mm -hmm. privatization of the VA. And what I am trying to say and what I argue in the book is, is that we either need to come out and say what's going to happen if we follow these policies, or we need to very closely monitor and make sure that there's not a unintended consequence of these policies before it's too late. And there is an appropriate role of Congress to have oversight over the VA, and there's a role of the press to make sure that they're looking at what's happening. And I'm trying to essentially raise the visibility. Let's just be cautious. I'm, I'm optimistic about where the VA is going. I'm supportive of where the VA is going. But being an expert in healthcare, I see some warning signs, and I want to make sure that we're vigilant, that there aren't these unintended consequences that lead us towards privatizing the VA. And now you said something interesting in there that I think might confuse some of the audience, mm -hmm. because you mentioned how the percentage of private care 
visits rose from 19% to 36%, I believe, was the number. Yes. Uh, so some people would say, well, then weren't you working towards privatization? Yeah. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit so people understand yeah. how that relates to actually not wanting to privatize but wanting to improve the quality of care? It can, it, it can be confusing, and uh, often this is what now happens in Washington. Mm -hmm. When you're not at one end of a political spectrum, so the left, very end of the political spectrum, says... We want complete control of health care by the government. Mm -hmm. The end of the political spectrum on the right is, we don't want government involved at all. Let's completely privatize. And if you happen to be in the middle with a compromise solution, where I am, mm -hmm. it's a very lonely place in Washington, mm -hmm. and people tend not to understand it. So I appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to explain it. I believe, as a physician, that the right answer in health care is when you do the right thing for your patient in this case, the veteran. So if you're a veteran, what should you want? You should want the very best care possible. Where the VA can provide these things that I've said I don't believe are readily available in the private sector, the veteran should have a strong VA that focuses on areas that they do extraordinarily well that the private sector doesn't. I've mentioned behavioral health care, PTSD, traumatic brain injury, rehabilitation, prosthetics, orthotics, the environmental exposure to toxic agents mm -hmm. when you get in combat. These are things that, frankly, the VA does extraordinarily well. But the VA can't do everything well. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a veteran and you need specialized care or something that's not available in your community, you should be able to get that in the private sector. So I envision a hybrid system with a strong, modern VA focused on centers of excellence and things that are important to veterans, and the ability to seek the private sector when those aren't available. And I've published that as a model of care in the New England Journal of Medicine so everybody could see the plan that I had for the VA, uh, and one that, frankly, I think just makes sense for veterans. And during your time, you talk about this quite a bit in the book, and again, going on with privatization, this term, this debate comes up quite a bit when we're talking about the recently passed Mission Act. Uh, before that, the term was choice, the choice care, things like that. Can you talk about what that bill did, does, will do? Um, it was passed a year ago, implemented, or was yep. going in just in June of this year. Uh, there's a, still a lot of confusion around it and things like that. You worked actually a lot of a lot of your time on that bill. It was passed after you right. left, uh, so I feel confident that you know it very well. Yes. Could you explain a little bit about what the Mission Act should do? Sure. I spent all three years of my time in government leading up to the passage of the Mission Act. Mm -hmm. When the wait time crisis happened in 2014, Congress quickly responded that President Obama signed it, a bill that said veterans shouldn't wait, they should be able to go into the community if they need care. That was called the Choice Act. The Choice Act was temporary. It was meant to last for three years. And it was also hastily put into place. So it was very complex, bureaucratic, and difficult for veterans to navigate. What the Mission Act did was it did two important things. It put the ability for veterans to go into the private sector into a permanent program. So it was no longer temporary, something I strongly supported. And secondly, it simplified the way to use that system of care so it wouldn't be so difficult that veterans just gave up on it. Again, something that I worked very hard to get done. And so I think that the Mission Act 
which is now law, President Trump signed it, is a very good thing and something that I supported. The danger in the Mission Act is something that is somewhat technical, but I can't overemphasize how important it is, in that the rules that govern how a veteran is able to go into the private sector are called access standards. And at the time that I was putting the bill through Congress and working with the president on this, I knew that was so important that we weren't ready yet to have all those rules in place. It had to be done very carefully. So I asked Congress to allow that to be at the discretion of the secretary. Give a year Mm -hmm. so that the secretary could come forth with a really well-thought-out plan because this is the engine that drives the whole Mission Act. And thinking that I would be that secretary, I felt that that was confident. I think Congress felt comfortable that I'd be doing that as well. Um, Unfortunately, uh, I wasn't there. The president had fired me. And now Secretary Wilkie had to produce the access standards. And I think Secretary Wilkie made a decision that these access standards would continue to be based on what I call administrative rules. And those rules are how many minutes it takes you to drive to a VA and how many days you need to wait for an appointment. I would have chosen a different path. I would have made them based on clinical rules. Everybody that I know who gets their care out of the VA, when they use their insurance or they go to the private sector, they get decisions based on their clinical situation. I'm a doctor. I see my patient. What's best for my patient? But in the VA, this is now based on how many minutes you have to drive to a VA or how many days you have to wait. So I say, if you happen to be a veteran who lives next door to a VA medical center, you should have the same ability to get high-quality care as somebody who happens to live 65 minutes away. And so I think that this is a mistake to use the access standards that were picked by the VA today. Now, this is not such bad news because since the access standards are at the discretion of the secretary, not part of law, this can be changed. Mm -hmm. And so there's flexibility. And so what I'm suggesting, I'm not trying to say that there was a, a bad intent in picking these access standards, but what I am saying is this needs to be studied very carefully. We have to monitor it because if I am right, this is going to lead to bad consequences for veterans, and then let's make the adjustments that we need to make. Absolutely. And to, to tie this back into to the book, you talk a lot about this, uh, but you also write a lot about how you felt that your efforts to craft the legislation and to do other work within the VA was often undermined by what you refer to, and we've read about in the media, yes. the Mar-a-Lago trio, uh, and then a separate group that you refer to as the politicals. Uh, in the book. Could you talk a little bit about uh, these groups, who they were, and how they influenced your time at the VA? Yeah. What um, many people may not realize is is that when a president comes into the administration, uh, the group that supported the old president, 4,000 political appointees, leave on January 20th, and 4,000 new political appointees eventually come into the administration. And they're distributed all throughout government. So VA gets about 30 political appointees who get put into leadership positions. And uh, these, these political appointees generally 
are there for the right reason and um, you know are very effective at being able to help their agencies, as were most who were given the VA. But I had a number of them that were more politically ideologues than necessarily willing to focus on the mission. And they uh, believed differently than I did mm -hmm. that these access standards and the Mission Act should move towards the direction of using administrative rules to open up the VA very broadly, which I believed would be leading towards privatization. And to give you a sense about this, when the Mission Act and the bill that I proposed went to the Senate VA committee, which is where bills go to their committee uh, for a vote, the vote by the senators, both Republicans and Democrats, was 14 in favor of the bill that I proposed, including the Republican chairman, Johnny Isaacson, and one sole senator who opposed it. These political appointees aligned themselves with that senator, and ultimately that minority bill was the one that ended up getting into these access standards. So, so there was, instead of the VA acting with one voice, there were really two voices. There was the secretary, mm -hmm. and then there were a group of uh, rogue political appointees who ultimately had the support of the White House. Mm -hmm. And that was really the issue, I believe, that led towards the differences between me and ultimately the president's decision to make a change in secretary. Now, that's interesting what you just stated, because the, I believe, as you wrote in the book, the idea, I won't say that the word was used, but the idea of privatization came up very early in your initial conversation with the president-elect about you potentially coming on as VA secretary. Do you feel that President Trump fully uh, understands or has a desire to move the VA in the direction of privatization, or is this a situation where uh, maybe lower-level political appointees have an agenda uh, that isn't fully communicated all the way up the chain of command for full understanding? It, it's, a, it's a very fair question, Jeremy. Um, I don't think I'm at the point that I feel like I can speak for what the president wants or what the president's intention are. Mm -hmm. Every time I was with the president, the president was focused on is what we're doing good for veterans. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to you know, give him the benefit that he's trying to act in veterans' interests. I do believe that these political appointees have a much stronger political ideology mm -hmm. that is much closer affiliated with the Koch brother organization called Concerned Veterans for America that has a political focus to move government out of services. And look, I, I think every American who cares about veterans has the right to put forth their ideas and should be putting forth their ideas. And I'm not saying that all of their ideas are bad ideas. Mm -hmm. I've already said I'm sort of in the middle on, mm -hmm. on, on this issue. But but I do think that there were two camps of decision makers. They were pushing very hard. I think that in many ways they found a way to get the president's ear on their issues. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I think that uh, continuing to drive the VA with a steady course the way that I was, I happen to believe that was in the veterans' best interests. Mm -hmm. And now we've seen a little bit of a different movement, much more towards the approach that they wanted. But... 
Um, you know, I think that um, the president, um, I don't know how much he has put himself into the details mm -hmm. of these policies. Time has gone incredibly quickly, I would say. I, there's a lot more I want to talk about, so I'm going to kind of jump into a yes. kind of a speed round because sure. I don't want to leave these okay. subjects out. But we'll try I'll and get you. through them a little yeah. bit more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Two things I want to talk about, medical cannabis and burn pits. Uh, medical cannabis is something that many veteran organizations are actively fighting to get the VA to be involved in. At a minimum, to do research, there's a bill in Congress to do research for the VA to drive research around the utility of medical cannabis. You have untold numbers of firsthand anecdotal accounts from veterans talking about how much cannabis has helped them overcome so many of their signature wounds of war that we've talked about. Uh, and But yet we're not really seeing a whole lot of movement, I think, around that right. or maybe leadership right. from the VA on that. That's topic one for the speed round. Topic two is around what you mentioned, some of the foundational uh, issues of the VA is around exposure to toxic yes. hazards. Yes. Everyone knows about Agent Orange. The Agent Orange of today's generation are burn pits, uh, these big open-air uh, pits that have yep. served in overseas combat zones where we just dump everything in there, light it on fire, and sometimes they burn 24-7, resulting in deployed service members breathing in these toxic fumes for their entire deployment, and now they're coming back and having very serious health issues related to them. Can you touch on both of those topics what the VA is maybe doing, what it's not doing, and how we can move forward to help okay. the veterans around and I'm us. And I'm going to try to do it quickly, but both of these are really important topics. Uh, I'm a physician and have scientific training, and I try to look at things scientifically. Um, the cannabinoid system is a system that has extreme potential to help improve health and wellness. And I am strongly in favor of any effort that will give us more evidence and research into ways that we can help veterans. And so the VA, I believe, should be involved and should be open to research for anything that will help veterans improve their lives, including medical cannabis. That's different than recreational mm -hmm. cannabis, but to ignore the benefits of this, I think, is at the peril of veterans, especially with the crisis and suicides that we've talked about. So it's time to change that. And Legislative help in that would be greatly uh, beneficial. On the issue of burn pits, uh, um, this is an area that, frankly, uh, we have backwards. The way our system works today to be able to get benefits is, is that we wait until there's scientific evidence mm -hmm. to be able to make our policy changes. That has resulted in our veterans waiting decades to get the help they need. You talked about Agent Orange. 50 years ago, people were exposed to Agent Orange. Today, in 2019, they are still fighting for their benefits. Presumptives, which are scientifically shown to be associated with toxicity to Agent Orange, have not yet been approved. Mm -hmm. Our Blue Water Navy mm -hmm. veterans uh, still waiting for the help that they need and deserve. Our Gulf War veterans not getting help and benefits when they clearly have exposure to toxic elements and aren't that isn't being recognized because the science hasn't yet shown it. I think we need to turn that around. When somebody sacrifices the way there are veterans have, they should be given the benefit of the doubt. Then if evidence comes to show that there's not an association or they weren't at the location that they said they were, and there's evidence to show that, then we need to change that policy for them. 
Uh, the burn pits are just us not learning mm -hmm. from the mistakes that we made for our Vietnam veterans. Mm -hmm. And we're making these veterans wait and suffer. We have a registry of 165,000 veterans in the burn pit registry, and we're studying it. But in the meantime, there are people that really need our help. And we need to start having government that is responsive to helping our veterans. No, thank you. I appreciate that because those are two issues that are incredibly important to us. And I'm sorry we don't have more time to spend yes. on them because they are uh, incredibly important. And so that the listeners know, there is legislation pushing forward for uh, the government and the VA to change so that we can take real action on this. That said, uh, and you write a little bit about this in your book, the VA actually does have the ability, the authority, to do research on cannabis and the utility of it. Do you think that there is uh, just a stalling tactic there, or uh, maybe they generally don't feel that they can't, can do anything until they get legislative guidance on, on cannabis? I think VA researchers want to do this research. I think that it has been made so incredibly difficult mm -hmm. to get these research protocols approved through the processes because it's a... Uh, a very restricted mm -hmm. drug at this point, uh, so that there were researchers in Charleston, South Carolina, wanting to do research who got blocked from you know these bureaucratic barriers. So I think that's where legislation will be helpful. Excellent. Um, one thing that I thought was very interesting early on in your tenure as VA secretary, you convened a meeting of former VA secretaries. Yeah. yeah. How did that go over, and did you learn something from that, and, and yeah. what do you think, do you stay in touch with any of them? I'd be curious to know yeah. sort of how that went. One of the biggest problems of a big organization like government is the constant turnover at the top. Almost every two years, there's been a new VA secretary. The undersecretary position, which I held, which I vacated, in February of 2017 is still open to this day. There's not a Senate-confirmed person there. So when you have this turnover, and then it takes a long time to fill it, there's not a consistency of vision. So I believe that it was incumbent upon me to learn from my fellow secretaries um, who had all dealt with all the same exact issues I was dealing with, mm -hmm. and I thought would be very, very helpful in moving things along and knew a lot more than I did in many cases. Mm -hmm. So I brought them all together. They were so kind and generous with their time to come and spend. They appreciated being tapped into. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I have all this knowledge. I mm -hmm. think I had identified a formula for making great progress at the VA, for fixing things, for doing important things to veterans. Mm -hmm. But when you leave, no one ever invites right. you to be able to <laughs> say, well, what did you learn? What was mm -hmm. working? What doesn't? That's a travesty. That's a failure of leadership. And so I wanted to write this book so that future leaders of the VA could pick it up and say, hey, you know what? This has been tried before. This is working. That isn't working. I think that was a duty or responsibility that I have. And I'll continue to speak out to advocate for the things that I believe are right for veterans. Well, thank you, sir. It's, it's an incredible opportunity to talk with you. I appreciate your time. Certainly appreciate your service at the VA. I know it's incredibly challenging. Regardless of the circumstances that you're in, uh, working at the VA is a challenge because it is very much under the spotlight. It's appropriate that it's under the spotlight, but I think it is often uh, you know, held up at a very high standard. Well, it's an honor, and I want to thank you, Jeremy. The IAVA is a fantastic organization that advocates for our Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Uh, hard work, always standing up and making sure that we're doing the right thing. And so 
the VSO community, IAVA, of course, included, were an important part and continue to be an important part of helping us reach the right decisions. Excellent. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it and I appreciate your time. Thanks.